Father, we're expectant this morning because we have your living word in our hands and we have your spirit at work in us. And so we pray that you might speak. And might you speak into, into where we are as individuals and as a church and let your living and active word do its work in us. In Jesus' name. Amen. I have a confession as we begin this morning. And my confession is this. I am a slow learner. And I've been preparing 2 Corinthians for the last two or three months, probably more since the summer. And I think this week, for the first time, the penny has really dropped and my jaw dropped with it as to why this letter matters so much. Because I think maybe you saw it as Arthur read it for us. Paul dials up the implications of what he's been talking to them and to us about for the last few months. Why these things matter so much. To put it really starkly and really simply, Paul says this is not just a question of emphasis. It's not just a matter of preference in ministry. The, The stark and the serious implication at the heart of this passage is that Satan loves to get into the church Satan loves to bring the world into the body of Christ. It's part of his deceitful scheming. You see it again and again and again through the scriptures. And he's very, very good at it. And here Paul is quite explicit. That is what is going on. And maybe sometimes we struggle to to remember that or to believe that or to accept that, the reality of the spiritual nature of the battle. But, says Paul... At the heart of the ministry and the influence of these super apostles sits Satan. Did you spot it? Verse 13 and 14. For such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. But that's where it's all been going. That is the conclusion of the matter in one sense. And so we're going to jump straight in and see how Paul gets there and then see what that means for us. I'm going to split the passage into two. Um, If you're a note taker, one to 15, and it's something like a different gospel message. So what Paul does, he's beginning to draw the letter to a close. Yet, of course, as with all preachers, when you say, let's draw to a close, you know it's going to be a while but he's got a couple of chapters to go. But he begins to draw things to a close, and he picks up and he draws together various threads and elements and ideas um, that he's been speaking about for the last few chapters, things that we've explored already. And from the outset in chapter 11, he reminds them that he loves them deeply. Paul loves this church in Corinth. That is the reason he has written at such length. That is the reason he's kept going on about it. It's because of his love for them. And the image that he uses, it's really striking. Verse 2, the image he uses is that of a, a loving dad wanting to prepare his daughter for marriage. And he wants to protect her. He wants to present her to Christ, beautiful and radiant and, and ready for the wedding day. He wants to look after her. See that in verse 2? I'm jealous you with a godly jealousy I promised you to one husband to Christ that I might present you as a pure virgin to him it's profoundly personal for Paul 
This is not him winning some sort of theological spat. This is not a Twitter war. It is so much more important for Paul. And you see, for him to be forced into a position where he's got to blow his own trumpet, it makes him feel a bit stupid. It makes him feel a bit of a fool. But let's be honest, they think he's stupid anyway. They think he's foolish anyway. So there's not really much to lose. And so you'll see, I hope, that this passage is a passage dripping in sarcasm. It means that in this section, Paul is prepared to begin to boast about his credentials, but he'll do it subversively. He flips it on its head. In fact, we're meant to snigger on the way through. We said in the past that these false apostles, these super apostles, are are good at boasting. If your framework for ministry is looking impressive and seeming powerful, well, that means they are very good at belittling others and very good at bigging themselves up. They are boasters. And so Paul says, okay, you want to boast? Let's boast. He loves them. And he knows as they're seeking to undermine his ministry methods, so they undermine his ministry message as well. There's a sense in which his methodology goes hand in hand with who he is and the Lord whom he serves. And so these aren't just nice ideas where we can agree to disagree. They get to the very core of what Paul stands for. And there are two examples, particularly in verse 7 to 11, that he begins to defend himself on. And the first one, we've seen it a few times already, is that of speaking, verse 5. I I do not think I am the least inferior to those super apostles. I may indeed be untrained as a speaker, but I do have knowledge. We've made this perfectly clear to you in every way. If you've been around week on week, forgive me for repeating this, but do you remember Corinth? Corinth is a place of power and eloquence and rhetoric and oratory. The kind of place where you can change the mind of a people with a single speech. And look at Paul, and he doesn't match up. In fact, just a reminder, at the start of his first letter, I think you get the reason for this. I've laboured it a couple of times, but if you want to go back there again, then please do. 1 Corinthians 2. Paul very deliberately says, 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 1, When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. You see, it's so that they won't rely on him. And if you know anything about Corinth, you'll know there are groupings and factions and individuals and personalities and celebrities being followed and idolized. Or Paul, so that they won't rely on him, deliberately puts his clever words away. He doesn't use them. He chooses to know what nothing with them except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He deliberately loses the wise and persuasive words in one sense. We know from elsewhere he can do that, but in Corinth he seems to choose not to. He knows that is their weakness, their tendency, and so he tweaks his methods when he's there to make sure that it's not a hindrance or a stumbling block. It's striking. His ministry, I think, is contextualized, but in such a way as to help to protect them from their unhelpful cultural tendencies and blind spots. 
mitigating against their love of celebrity, their love of rhetoric. Maybe there are some questions and implications to chat through at home groups this week of that. How do we bring the timeless message of Jesus to different places where we know the reality of what that place is like and where people <coughs> might misinterpret what we say or the tendency they may might have towards certain things? And so on one hand, Peter, Peter Paul is um, going on about the speaking element again for them in Corinth, being used against him. But then the other one, it's a bit strange, and it seems to be that of finance and support. You see verse 7 and 8 and 9. It seems to be that this, the idea at the heart of it is anything that is precious is worth paying for. That's not so far from us, is it? We can associate with that. If something is free or it is cheap, you think it's going to be rubbish, probably. We might struggle to trust that it's going to work. I remember when we got married, having to be persuaded numerous times that it is okay to buy generic drugs. You don't have to pay for Nurofen. It's ten times more expensive. It's got nothing else in it, apparently. But if we've paid for it, do you see, if we've paid money for it, then we think it's going to be more effective or more valuable or work better. Well, so in Paul's context here, he spent 18 months in Corinth. He sought to raise money from elsewhere, though, so that the Corinthians didn't have to pay for the privilege of hearing the gospel. So have a look at verse 7. Was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches. I think that's kind of metaphorical. That's not a literal robbing. By receiving support from them so as to serve you. And when I was with you and needed something, I wasn't a burden to anyone for the brothers who came from Macedonia. They supplied what I needed. I've kept myself from being a burden to you in any way. He didn't charge them, and we think that's great. Paul, that is great. That sounds really wise. They see that you are not in it for the money. They see that you're not greedy, Paul. But for them, it was, it was more like a weakness. Because they are used to greed and they expect it. Corinthian culture would celebrate a successful, itinerant, rich ministry. For them, if something is valuable, it's worth paying for. So maybe the question in their minds is, well, can Paul not raise the funds he needs in Corinth because he's not really that good? His message is not really that important? But Paul defends himself, no, no, no. As is always my custom, I sought not to be a burden to you. And so I raised support from elsewhere. The, the Corinthian church needs to stop thinking like the Corinthian city when it comes to these things. But here's the thing. Imagine the scenario. Imagine you come up to me after the service. We have a coffee and we're chatting. And you're saying, well, I've got some good friends who work overseas and they're working cross-culturally, they've taken the gospel to somewhere where there's, there, there's not much going on, and it's hard. Somewhere maybe a bit like Corinth in here. And you read me from their prayer letter, and you tell me some of the, the grief that they're getting, because like Paul, they won't accept money from the people they're ministering amongst. Or, or like Paul, they are choosing to speak very plainly as they communicate Jesus with that culture. 
And like Paul, they are getting grief for it. And to be honest, I'm not sure I would take it that seriously. Would we? Does it, guys, does it matter that much? Just get the message out there. Just sow the seeds. You know, parable of the soils. Have you not read it? Just, just spread the gospel liberally around the place. Why don't you charge for it then, if that, that's what matters to them? Why don't you just up your rhetoric a bit then, if that was, that's what matters to them? I'm not sure we would take it that seriously, but Paul really does. In fact, surprisingly seriously, because it turns out this is really important. Um, have a look at verse 4. You first see that there. The, um, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have a divine power to demolish strongholds. We do things the way the Lord tells us to do it. We'll flick on again to um, verse 13, 14, 15. For such people, he says, are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It's not surprising then if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. Now people struggle, commentators struggle, with the content of the message that these super apostles were preaching in Corinth. Paul describes it in the passage as a different gospel, But it seems to not be a different gospel in a Galatians-type way. Do you remember in Galatians, Paul is very angry. They've turned their back on the gospel of grace. They've added to Jesus. And actually, if you do look down at verse 22 and 23, you do see there were Jewish credentials going on in their message. But when it comes down to it, that is the only glimpse we get of the content of the message that they are speaking. Something to do with Jewishness, perhaps. Which makes you think, well, maybe there isn't a specific heresy going on in Corinth. Maybe it's not like Galatians in that sense. It's a different gospel, but it's not Jesus plus. And the different gospel seems to be this idea of power over weakness. The gospel of looking impressive. It's worldliness. It's a sort of syncretism that marries a Corinthian framework and values with the gospel of Jesus. They played down the cross. They played up glory. They minimized suffering. They maximized strength. That seems to be why it's a different gospel. Which means it's much harder and more subtle to spot or to diagnose, it's an issue of emphasis. Verse 4, 11 verse 4, For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. He's not explicit in terms of what the content is, but it seems to be much more about the way in which it comes. It's a false gospel. It's very serious. And brothers and sisters, we need to apply this carefully. The more I've chewed over this these last couple of weeks and the penny has dropped with my jaw, 
you have to be struck by the fact that the conclusion of the matter is in 2 Corinthians, it's an emphasis on power and glory, on strength and impressiveness, on being extraordinary, being excellent. And when a church goes like that, or when a ministry relies on those things, then the stark answer is that is Satan himself drawing people away from the gospel. Do you get it? It's striking, isn't it? Because that's how he diagnoses them by the time you get to 13, 14, and 15. These people are, are false apostles. They are Satan working among people, masquerading as angels of light. They're incredibly dangerous. Which means you can see why the pattern for ministry really matters. It's not just a question of emphasis or preference. Because, and I say this carefully, there are Christian groups or church networks or ministries or churches out there whom I'm aware of that feel quite like Corinth. But if what Paul is saying is true, then that's a very, very dangerous thing. Because that is Satan at work in these ministries. Which means Paul is a very different beast. Because Paul rejoices in weakness. And in 16 to 33, you get this amazing catalogue of calamities where he boasts in his weaknesses. He boasts in his shipwrecks. He boasts in the mess of his ministry. And so verse 16 to 33, you see a different gospel minister. There's lots to cover, um, and we're just going to skate over much of it, but I want you to jump in at the end, <laughs> verse 30 to 33. Paul is saying, in one sense, you are what you preach. And in some senses, I think 30 to 33 is the punchline at the end of the joke. So verse 30, if I must boast... I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is to be praised forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor under King Aretaeth had the city of Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me. For I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. And you think, those last two verses are a bit weird, aren't they? Have you ever concluded that before? Why didn't you just finish the chapter, verse 31, Paul? You've concluded all your boasting in weakness, these specific experiences, the <coughs> catalogue of calamities. Next week, chapter 12, boasting in his ongoing thorn. That means he has to look to the Lord. What do 32 and 33 add to the story? What is going on? Why talk about this being lowered from the, um, from the city of Damascus in a basket? I think there are at least two reasons. Um, you can pick up the story in Acts 9, which again, it may be worth doing in, um, in home groups. But two reasons now just to focus on. One, um, I think the, the writer, the author, the preacher Don Carson puts it very clearly and very helpfully. So let me quote from him. He says this, he says, he doesn't include it as a piece of high drama to spice up his memoirs. Rather, he recalled the event with shame. Probably it was the event that shattered whatever residual pride still lurked in the proud heart of Saul the Pharisee. He had set out for the city of Damascus with the avowed intent of rounding up Christians. He, he left the city not as the hunter, but as the hunted. 
the toast of high rabbinic circles, this educated and sincere Pharisee, this man who had access to the highest officials of Jerusalem, slunk out of Damascus like a criminal, lowered like a catch of dead fish in a basket whose smelly cargo he had displaced. Do you see, so he mentions it in one sense because it's the start of things to come. This is the beginning of Paul's ministry to the Gentiles. This is the end of the life of Saul. The beginning of the life of Paul. This is the way things would be now. It starts bad and it gets worse. So that's one thing. Paul is showing the shame of what it means to be an apostle. But secondly, and perhaps more than that, I'll see what you think. Some have said this is Paul specifically and gloriously and deliberately subverting the shame and honor culture of the time. Bit of background. In antiquity, for a, for a soldier, one of the finest military awards for valor was named the Corona Moralis. And it was an award given to the man, the soldier, who was first over the wall in the face of the enemy. There would be glory and honor and fame and recognition and prestige. And at times you couldn't tell who was over. They're all racing to get up to get this award. And so you would make an oath to swear that it was you. Yes, I swear I was the first one over the wall and into the city. And so do you see Paul's point? He's the first one down. Verse 31, he, he even swears he is telling the truth. He's flipped it all on its head for them. Real apostleship, gospel ministry, it's not about prestige and power. It's, it's pain and persecution. It's, it's running for your life. And those final two verses, I think, are the, the punchline of the joke that he is telling them. And the joke is his life, in one sense. Where Greek heroes might be eulogized or immortalized or celebrated for, for their amazing conquests, their, their awesome experiences, or where Romans were expected to glory in their courage and their achievements, listing them proudly like a CV. And where Corinthians have this love of celebrity, they would have been hoping and expecting someone like that, and Paul, Paul just flips it on its head. You can almost imagine and hear them as he's being read out, sniggering in church. Paul deliberately makes it comical. Pick it up at verse 23. Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked and... I mean, if they force him to boast, he will. But, but he's not going to boast in the things they wanted. You know, that the results of his missionary journeys, not a mention. The number of churches he's planted, not a mention. The letters he's written, the esteem with which he's held up by so many believers at the time, not a mention. His unique and extraordinary personal calling by Jesus, this road to Damascus experience, not a mention. 
Now, he'll boast, but he won't boast in the things they want him to boast in. He will boast in sufferings and hardship. He will boast where his life has been horrific. He will boast where he has been a coward and run away. Would we employ Paul with a CV like this? Seriously? Just imagine him turning up for a job interview, listing these glorious conquests for us. I'm not sure we would. But actually, do you see more than that what he's doing? As he lists the reality of his ministry, who does this list in many ways remind you of? It's Jesus, isn't it? This is what the kind of cross-shaped ministry looks like. This is the something of the reality of, of a ministry shaped by Jesus rather than being shaped by the world, shaped by Corinth, shaped by Oxford. And it's actually the second bookend of the book, if you remember as well. We saw right back in chapter 1, Paul outlines his ministry model and he uses very Jesus-type language as he does it. He talks about resurrection and death and life in him. And yet here he fills in the colour for us. He gives us the texture of what it looked like. Paul's ministry life was a sort of extended, drawn-out crucifixion. And there's a sense in which he was unique. But there is a sense in which as well it asks hard questions of people like me, others who are in a full-time paid capacity, or those considering a full-time paid capacity in churches, but also, but also in one sense for all of us, any in the church family here, as we are part of the, the family meal, as we get stuck in, as we, as we serve one another whether seen or unseen, whether formal or informal, whether enjoyable and things that we love doing or or things not so much, as we suffer and as we sacrifice and as we serve. A cross-shaped life, among other things, means a willingness to suffer firstly. In Paul, you see opposition and difficulty. That's... That's important for this week, isn't it? In light of all that's been going on. To suffer emotional or physical pain in our efforts to see Christ glorified, to see the gospel preached, to see his people cared for and discipled and growing in him. Is that our model, a willingness to suffer? To suffer like Paul, who suffers like Jesus? Or or a willingness to sacrifice, to sacrifice with Paul time, sleep, food, money, comforts, friendships, maybe a career. Think of Paul's trajectory and then how it fell off. A willingness to, to see Christ glorified and the gospel preached, to see his people cared for and discipled. Is that our model? Is that our expectation? Or or thirdly, this willingness to serve. A cross-shaped life means, among other things, this willingness to serve. And it's particularly seen from Paul in his love for people. And I find this deeply challenging. And I'd love for you to pray for me in this. Despite them being difficult and exhausting, despite conflict and pastoral issues there, despite the foolishness of people at times, they make bad choices, they run after other things, Paul has this love for people. And And verse 28 is almost the climax of the section. 
28 and 29. He, he lists all the external pressures, all the stuff he's gone through that makes us wince. But actually the conclusion is the daily internal weight and motivation that keeps him going. His love and concern for these people. We almost wonder whether this is more painful, more of a challenge. Verse 28, besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak? And I do not feel weak. Who is led into sin? And I do not inwardly burn. But again, it's, it's very Jesus-shaped. We, with Paul, follow a Jesus who loved the church, who gave himself up for her. And I guess when we, with Paul, grasp more of that, then maybe we'll be more willing to minister like that. Paul's Jesus-like, cross-shaped love and concern for these churches keeps him going. It's amazing. Despite all the outward pressures, it seems to be the inward one where he concludes. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak? And I do not feel weak. Who is led into sin? And I do not inwardly burn. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we confess that we find passages like this make us feel uncomfortable. We, we thank you for Paul who follows Christ and for just his blatant cross-shaped ministry, his willingness to embrace opposition, hardship, shame, pain, lack of sleep, lack of food, lack of comfort, that he might follow Jesus because he is a servant of Jesus. And we pray that you would help us too as we wrestle with these ideas we've been with in, in Corinth. As we see something of the starkness of what it means to be these super apostles, to be like these super apostles who trust in glory and power and looking impressive and in being worldly. Help us to have clear thinking, clear understanding, to recognize the reality of the spiritual battle and the reality of Satan at work. He loves to get the world into the church. And so guard us and protect us, please. Give us hearts that long to go the way of Jesus. Give us courage, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.